Hey, Gordon, have you ever heard of Vasily Arkhipov? No, I don't think I've ever come across that name. Well, he's not very famous. I think he has 41 likes on Facebook right now. One of those people is me. But um, on October 27th, 1962, he might have saved the world. So October 27th was the peak of the crisis, the closest that the world ever came to nuclear war. It was I'm speaking with Thomas Bland, the director of the National Security Archive at George Washington University, the world's largest non-governmental library of declassified documents. On the submarine B-59, it had been traveling from the Arctic. Terrible conditions. The temperatures inside the sub. This is a submarine built for icy cold waters, and it's in 80-degree ocean in the Caribbean. They have... Their water systems have broken down. Their refrigeration systems are broken down. We know this from some of the diaries that the various submariners kept and from interviews with the officers of the sub, all four of them. Mm -hmm. They describe it the same way. Temperatures inside the sub are between 110 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. They've lost 20, 30 pounds apiece. Uh, Only the sailor who actually has the wheel of the sub is the only one who keeps any kind of uniform on. Everybody else is wearing their underwear, basically, I just want to jump in here and read the testimony of Vladimir Orlov. You have to understand how tense it was to be in that submarine. Of the nine sailors, four of them had actually fainted. The level of CO2 in the air was so high, they were falling like dominoes, in the words of Vladimir Orlov. And this went on for over four hours. And meanwhile, up on the surface, and these are diesel subs who have to come to the surface, run their diesel engines to recharge their electric batteries, and only then can they dive, and then the electric batteries power them while they're underwater. So their batteries are low, they're low on food, they're sweating, they're in terrible conditions, their subs just weren't made for this, and they're being bombed with these what's called practice depth charges. And they, U.S. Navy had sent the word to the Soviets, we're going to use these signals, and if you get a certain uh, pattern of these practice depth charges were just like the equivalent of a little hand grenade. You're supposed to surface in an easterly direction. And this was a normal, uh, during NATO exercises and Soviet Navy exercises, they would usually work out some kind of signaling like this. But And the Americans in Washington thought, oh, well, you know, this is normal, the signaling will work, and the subs will come to the surface. But in Moscow, they never got the word about this particular set of signals, and these subcaptains had no idea that they were that was the signaling. We found out a few years ago from U.S. Navy veterans that they had been so frustrated with the idea of dropping these little hand grenades that would just set off a sound, right? They weren't really a damaging or a weapon that would have any effect on a sub hundreds of meters below the surface. And so the Navy guys, on their own, without anybody in Washington know, would pull the pin on these little hand grenades and stick them inside a cardboard tube like you find in the middle of a toilet paper roll, and then they'd drop the things overboard it would take a couple hundred meters of seawater before the cardboard disintegrated. The pin would pop up, the little handle would pop up, and the grenade would then explode. But if you're down there on the sub, it meant that the hand grenades were coming down right next to the skin of the sub. And as, as a couple of the Soviets described, it was like being inside an oil drum being struck by a sledgehammer. So, 
So after a dose of dozens of these sledgehammer strokes, the testimony of the only survivor on that in that command post of B-59, Vadim Orlov, an intelligence officer, said the commander finally just threw a tantrum, essentially said, we're going to go down with the ship. There could be World War III going on up there. Mm-hmm. Well, if we go down, you know, under this attack, we're going to at least take some of those so-and-sos with us. And, you know, let's go, let's, let's get the nuclear torpedo ready. Quote that Thomas Platten is referring to. We're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not disgrace our Navy. And it's at this moment where, you know, what we now know is the U.S. Navy has nuclear depth charges available, that the entire doctrine of the U.S. military was we might not use the nuclear weapons first, but if anybody fires a nuke at us, we'll reply, we'll do so we have a, just a potential cascade of if that nuclear torpedo had actually been launched at, say, one of the aircraft carriers or destroyers that were up on the surface. So it's at this moment that the political officer, the deputy commander of the submarine brigade, who happened to be on that sub, Arkhipov, says to the commander, no, you know, maybe we should surface and find out what's going on and communicate with Moscow. Um, in his own interviews before he died, Arkhipov did not take a huge amount of credit for this. He, the phrase he used was he cooled down the commander, cooled wow. down the commander. And he never told the direct quotes uh, that Orlov testified to, but um, Orlov has a lot of credibility. He's now passed away, unfortunately. But other submarine commanders don't like the idea that one of their own could have had a temper tantrum that could have launched a nuke mm-hmm. and say, oh, no, he would never have done such a thing. But Given the conditions they were living in, the possibility of not even a deliberate launch, but an accidental launch, were just terrifying. And that's the moment that Arkansas's intervention saved the world. Just imagine. Think about it. You're in this metal box. You're sweating. You're down to your skivvies. You've had nothing decent. For, for days, if not weeks, you, you're out of touch with Moscow. You're being bombarded by the Americans on the surface. You've had two weeks of incredible tension around the missiles in Cuba. You know, your only news is you've gotten at night when you, you know, intercepted Miami radio stations and oh, the world's on the brink of war, etc. And, and what do you think in that situation? And you've got a nuke, and you can take down some of the enemy with you. The temptation is just overwhelming and it just leads you to that uh, conclusion about the missile crisis man were we lucky the most amazing thing about this story to me is that this is one of the most dramatic moments of our history and the Navy dropping the flashbangs really had no idea how tense it was. I mean, their testimony basically just says, you know, we arrived at 0647R, we dropped the SPDC warning, those are the flashbangs, and then about an hour later they leave. And, and that, in that span of an hour, we could have had nuclear catastrophe. And, and according to their testimony, they, they hadn't a clue what was going on or the potential consequences of, of their actions. We were lucky then. Air Force guys over Alaska didn't take a nuclear shot at the Russians over Siberia. We're lucky that, you know, Arkhipov and the commander of B-59 calmed down enough not to launch that nuclear. So we're lucky that President Kennedy didn't approve that invasion plan. We're lucky that the cruise missile that was pointed at Guantanamo didn't go off by accident. We're lucky that 
you know, Curtis LeMay and the Bomb them Back to the Stone Age guys didn't get their way and were already launching, you know, uh, bombing and invasions, because now we know there were 140 tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba. And if the Marines had come ashore, which the Marines were itching to do, they probably would have been blown apart with these tactical nuclear weapons. And it's just, it, it's an extraordinary situation where there are a number of kind of heroes, like Archipov, who are heroes not for doing something, but for not doing something. It's like, you know, Kennedy and Khrushchev, they put the world and the human race at risk by their, you know, gambles, by their testosterone attacks. You mm -hmm. know, Kennedy, by maintaining this CIA threat of invasion of Cuba, even after the Bay of Pigs, and Khrushchev for in a fit of macho temper, deciding to move these missiles secretly to Cuba to, to threaten the United States to, to have a better strategic balance in Cuba. Castro, for saying Khrushchev, you know, use them or lose them. Incredibly reckless could have terminated quick time. on things and preventing conflict and preventing a war from happening but actually down in the field they got no control at all and it was this reality it scared McNamara and others to death uh, McNamara spent the next four years trying to make sure that every nuclear weapon had a, had a what's called a positive action link had an actual control on it and you couldn't set one off a local commander could not set one off on their own on their own mm -hmm. but you still have that you know the drama that we on Dr. Strange level, where under certain conditions, the local commander could use it. And that's a scary thing indeed. Right, I was I was going to say. I mean, it sounds this this instance. I mean, it's almost impossible to talk about it without talking about Dr. Strange love. Dr. Strange love was absolutely right. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and I'm joined by Sam Fenn. This week, the Terry Project goes nuclear. We explore anxiety around nuclear technology. Are we worried enough? Are we worried too much? Today's show is stacked with nuclear experts. That was just Thomas Blatton of the National Security Archives. Next, we ask the question, is nuclear energy safe? For that, we're joined with Professor David Meesday, a nuclear physicist, and Professor Jose Echeverri, a professor of environmental studies at York University. Then we ask how our nuclear anxieties have affected our art and culture. First, we speak with Mike Ray from Golden Age Collectibles in Vancouver. It's a comic book store. Then cultural historian Margot Henriksen and Alexei Kajevnikov. And finally, nuclear proliferation, Iran, and the danger of rogue actors. We speak to Lawrence Korb, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. So hold on one sec, Gordon. We're going to do a podcast on nuclear power. Yeah. And uh, nuclear proliferation. Naturally. So like enrichment of uranium. Yep, that's involved. 
and <laughs> radiation poisoning. Yep. Meltdown, nuclear meltdowns. We're going to have to touch on that. Okay, do you know anything about any of those things? No. No, no I know nothing about that. Well, you're more familiar with it than you think. This is Dr. David Meesday, Professor Emeritus of Nuclear Physics at the University of British Columbia. There are two forms of nuclear energy. One is fusion and one is fission. And fusion is what keeps us all alive. The sun, our sun, which is just like any other star, works on nuclear physics. Uh, it uh, fuses hydrogen and eventually makes helium, and it creates an enormous amount of power, enough power to last for four and a half billion years. So we're all familiar with the effects of it, but we don't know the result. Now, the other form of nuclear power, which is coming from the same basic uh, force of nature, is fission, which is that you take uranium, for example, or plutonium, and you divide it up into two pieces, and you get power out. Now, the critical thing is that the power you get out is literally a million times more than if you burn carbon. In presidential politics, we're hearing a lot about enriching uranium um, in the case of Iran, uh, and, and some people are estimating that Iran has 20% enriched uranium, and Gordon and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about in uranium enrichment? Well, first of all, you need an enriched uranium to make a bomb, and in most reactors nowadays you have enriched uranium. So what does that mean? In natural uranium, you have two isotopes, uranium-235 and uranium-238. Now, in natural uranium, you have only 0.7%, so very little, and the rest is the uranium-238. If you want to make um, a reactor fuel, nowadays most people, and even the new can-do reactors, have enriched fuel, which means you increase the amount of uranium-238 up to a few percent, four or five percent is typical. And that used to be very difficult to do. Um, during the Manhattan Project in the 40s, they had a huge plant in Oak Ridge which covered football fields, very expensive and very costly to build and to maintain. And so really the United States was the only power, uh, and Russia obviously as well, that could uh, enrich uh, uranium. Now, unfortunately, they invented centrifuges, which is just a, a device which spins very fast, and it spins out the uranium-238 to the outside, and uh, you get the uranium-235 on the inside. You can't separate them chemically, but you can separate them by this physical means. And in that way, it's much cheaper and much easier nowadays to separate out the uranium-235. So what is your feeling about the anti-nuclear fervor in Japan now in the wake of Fukushima? And the, the thing that most people seem to forget is that that tsunami caused unbelievable amount of damage in Japan. I mean, 20,000 people roughly were killed, 16,000 we know, and three or 4,000 missing. As far as one can tell, not a single person died from radiation in the Fukushima disaster, and yet 
the the press whenever you hear the CBC or CTV they will have uh, 20 minutes on the tsunami disaster and they will always put in five minutes about the Fukushima disaster and uh, it's a it's just a way of pressing a panic button in people mm-hmm. it's it's exaggerating one minor aspect of what was a terrible disaster. I mean, they're still recovering from it in Japan. And uh, my feeling is that nuclear power can be quite safe and that with with careful uh, attention to safety, that um, it is something which is just as valuable for society as other forms. And at the moment, all that's going to happen is that you're going to pour more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and accelerate global warming so that uh, the the slowing down of nuclear power is not going to, in the long run, be of overall benefit to to mankind. If there was one misconception about nuclear (laughs) power that you could clear up um, for people, what, what would you choose that to be? Well... I think the major problem that people have is that they're terrified of radiation. And they feel that radiation is extremely harmful and it's an exaggerated, almost paranoid uh, response. Causes three-eyed fish, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly. Um, So... Let me let me give you an example. If I gave you 50 Tylenols or 100 Tylenols, you would be dead within a few hours. And it is true that if I give you a dose of 5 sieverts you'll pro- of radiation, you'll probably be dead in, in a week or two. But if, to go back to the Tylenol, you could take several Tylenol every day for, for months and you'd be fine. And... People don't seem to realize that the body has recovery mechanism for radiation as well. So we have radiation about us every day. Our body responds, repairs the damage, and we have no no, uh, residual damage. So nuclear radiation is not something to be afraid of. We have it around us all the time. And... Unfortunately, it's to do with the amount, and that's where people have great difficulty because they don't understand the measuring units and things like that. But we are in an environment of nuclear radiation all the time, and that is what terrifies people about nuclear power, is that it has concomitant with it, inevitably, radiation. Do you think that expanding... um the nuclear energy program in the especially in the United States is maybe is a good idea then and to cut down on um, carbon emissions I feel that it is necessary to have some nuclear power for a little while uh, it's quite clear that nuclear power will not last forever most estimates are that the, at the present rate 50 or 100 years is all that we have for, for nuclear power so that mankind has to find other ways of finding power and all of these other methods will have to be used such as wind power and tidal power and, and the rest uh, one thing is also certain is that we can't burn carbon and oil at the rate we are so that um, we are going to have to find solutions 
which uh, avoid the classical power generating techniques. Okay, so it seems like the takeaway is there are some dangers associated with nuclear power, but on the whole, people are actually more afraid of it than they need to be. How do we pronounce your name, Jose? Echeverry? You got it. That's the way Canadians pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) This is Dr. Jose Echeverry, professor of environmental studies at York University, and he's not quite as keen on nuclear energy as Professor Miesde. So, frankly, to make a long story short, I think nuclear power belongs in one place and one place only, uh, in the museum. Uh, (laughs) And we should file it in the museum under dangerous technologies. I'll tell you one quick example that I find very, very difficult, which is the entire food supply of Japan at the moment is compromised. And this is something people don't speak on a regular basis here in Canada or in North America. Uh, more in Europe, but in North America, people are oblivious to what's going on with the food supply in Japan. And what it boils down to right now is that people in Japan have to ask themselves every moment, is this water I'm going to drink and this food going to eat safe for me or my children? And that's a pretty tough situation to be on a regular basis. Fukushima continues to be an unfolding disaster. Uh, So the consequences in terms of uh, epidemiology and the effects on humans are not going to be known for a while. Why are you worried about the stability of nuclear reactors? The the problem is this. The problem is, unlike, say, solar photovoltaic systems or wind turbines that can be manufactured in industrial settings, mass-produced, etc., nuclear reactors are... Uh, technology that it's designed for one specific context. Uh, you cannot manufacture nuclear power plants in a factory like you would do solar photovoltaic systems, for example. Uh, and what that means is that the design of the reactors is very much context dependent. So by that I mean that it uh, obeys to the seismology of the region, the climatic conditions, etc. So the materials that you use, etc., are all specified for the specific area where nuclear power plants are designed. So a nuclear plant designed in Ontario, Canada, for example, uh, with a seismology that is much, much different than a country, say, like Chile in uh, Latin America, Mm -hmm. would have to be rethought uh, and revamped from from, uh, the bottom up. Um, And that is the problem of the safety of the reactors, is that even good designs, quote-unquote, if there is such thing, um, would have to be uh, adapted to the local conditions, all the things that I just mentioned. Um, And that is, uh, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems. Um, And learning by doing, uh, which is the approach of nuclear, it's not a very safe approach. What about nuclear waste itself? Indeed. I mean, again, it's a liability. How can you, for example, who's going to take it? Let's begin by that uh, uh, situation. Then some people say, well, don't worry about it. We can reprocess. We can move around plutonium to reprocess it in breeding reactors. Um, And you really, is that the world you want to have where you're having chains of radioactive uh, transfers between countries where small amounts can be used for uh, terrorist purposes. I think that's a type of world that I don't really want to be any part of. And 
let alone that who's going to take the radioactive waste? Whose community? Is it your community? Is it my community? I don't think so. I don't want it. I doubt you want it in your community. And then it comes the issue of time. If we find a community that willingly takes these things, how are they going to tell the people of the future of 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, 100,000 years from now, that that zone where they've put this garbage forever, uh, it's going to remain uh, radioactive and it's a dangerous no-go place. Simply honest, it's um, a problem. And, And the last thing I should highlight is every time we choose to build a nuclear reactor, and it's a choice we make or we avoid, and when that choice is made, that means you will not have a market for renewable energy, for combined heat and power, for district energy, for electric vehicles, for smart generation, uh, smart grids, etc. All the options that are available now in the 21st century that do not come with the liability that nuclear power comes. In review there, uh, Professor Day was a little bit less worried about nuclear radiation than Echeverry was. I mean, he said on a couple occasions that we haven't observed any fatalities directly from the nuclear fallout at Fukushima, whereas Professor Echeverry said you know, he might have actually agreed, but he, but he said that we weren't really able scientifically to observe these long-term, the long-term effects of the radiation. Um, and then the other, I think, important difference here was that Mies Day really thought that we needed to use nuclear energy, at least in the short term, to satisfy our power demands. Because if we used um, coal and other energy alternatives, the carbon emissions would be so great. Whereas Professor Escherberry recognized that, but, but thought that using nuclear energy to any degree really just uh, prevents us from making the shift to renewables sooner. Right, and while Mizde sort of seems frustrated um, that people are so afraid of a technology that might actually not be so dangerous, I think Echeverry um, recognizes that this fear itself is a sort of symptom of nuclear technology. But one thing they both agree on, and I guess this is the salient point, is that people are, are just scared of nuclear technology. And the question becomes, have they always been so afraid? Let's historicize it. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Sam Fenn. Today I'm here with Mike Ray from Golden Age Collectible Store in Vancouver, and we're going to be talking about comic books and nuclear anxiety. How are you doing today, Ray? Really good. How are you doing? Uh, very good. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem. So, I don't know much about comic books, but one thing I do know is that Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider and became Spider-Man. Am I right? That's correct. So my question is, is this a broader theme, sort of anxiety about um, nuclear technology or science? And, and do is this sort of similar to the way other superheroes got their power? In some ways. In, in the early, you see it mostly in the early Marvel comics of, of the, the 1960s. Most of the characters have some sort of radiation in their, uh, in their origin. Like, 
Hulk is the most extreme example. He was uh, Bruce Banner is exposed to a gamma bomb, which I assume is some sort of neutron bomb-like thing that gives out an intense burst of gamma rays. Right. And anyways, this causes him to turn into the Hulk. But when, you know, usually, it used to be whenever he was angry. Now it seems that he's angry all the time. <laughs> right. The other example is Daredevil. He uh, ironically saved a blind man who was about to be hit by a truck, but a canister falls off the truck, hits him in the face, and of course it turns out that it was radioactive material, right. which makes uh, him blind, and maybe the, may have caused his uh, senses to be uh, amped up a thousandfold. Okay, good. You've got the Fantastic Four, who, though not nuclear in origin, they're they got their powers from cosmic rays, you know, the intense radiation in space, basically. Mm-hmm. When are these stories originating? When, when are they being produced? So you're looking early 60s, 1962, 63. So I guess one of the interesting questions that this raises is that, is this really a product of anxiety about nuclear technology? I mean, it seems kind of beneficial for these individuals, right? Well, the thing is, whereas... Uh, with Daredevil, it's given him his, his his advantages. What happens, especially in the early Hulk stories, uh, Bruce Banner had no change, control over the change. Mm-hmm. It would uh, solar, uh, like the sun was, uh, if he was exposed to sunlight, he would turn back to Banner. But there were also periods of instability where he would uh, suddenly wake up and he would have Bruce Banner's body but the Hulk's face and things like that. So to this extent, it sort of seems like one of the one of the repeating themes might be that you have these scientists who are working with extremely dangerous material and being sort of um, and, and being sort of flippant about the way that they work with it, or that there's this there's a potential for um, the experiments to go awry. Yeah, uh, a lot of it seems again to stem from. Uh, movies, you know, the mad scientists, because they were always dabbling in things that man wasn't meant to know, right. and or being careless in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And as a side effect, some sort of monster is usually produced. Um, I guess. Okay. So the the final question, and I guess the most important one we're going to ask is, what is the best nuclear origin story in your opinion? Like, if, um, if our listeners want to go to your store. Um, and uh, Golden Age Collectibles, am I right? That Golden Age Collectibles, yeah. Granville Street, downtown. Yeah. If they want to go there and buy a, a comic um, to really see what you're talking about, which one do you recommend? Well, the Hulk is a good example of the you know, of it going awry. Mm-hmm. Because even now he's going through another phase where he's not totally in control. And story, current storyline is a little complicated, but, you know, he's... Uh, just uh, had the Bruce Banner part of him separated from his body. Right. And that Bruce Banner has been working to recreate the Gamma accident so that he can be a Hulk again. He's got this island and he's been doing the the sort of a uh, using Gamma radiation he's been using the wildlife to create his own creature. Alone in the desert stands the most fearsome weapon ever created by man. The incredible Gamma Bomb. In a concrete bunker, scientists await the G-Bomb's first awesome test. Dr. Bruce Banner, 
whose genius created the bomb, awaits the final moment as a fellow scientist angrily argues. It's too dangerous. You should have revealed the secret of the gamma ray to us. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chow down my vegetables. I love you most of all. My favorite vegetable. Sprouts. It's your 75-cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub-basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tinny flew right up. I'm red as a beat. We're joined on the phone today by Margaret Hendrickson from the University of Hawaii. Professor Hendrickson is author of Dr. Strange Loves America Society and Culture in the Atomic Age. The book looks at the effect of nuclear anxiety and nuclear dissent on our pop culture. Professor Hendrickson, you talked about in your book how the bomb was at once a, a unifying symbol of American safety and security in this culture of consensus. But as you said, in the 60s and on, it became the symbol of anxiety and, um, and dissent. Can you maybe speak to that transformation, what accounted for um, it, the, the mass anxiety becoming a mass cultural movement? Well, you know, it is a difficult um, sort of distinction to make, in part because I think both of those symbolic natures of the bomb still exist even today but on the one hand it's a symbol of pride and American strength and on the other hand it's a symbol of potential genocide and you know weapons of mass destruction as they're now called but I think the major distinction and why more dissent could be voiced in the late 1950s and forward uh, was in part because of the changing political landscape in the United States where the most intensive anti-communist hysteria and repression lifted so that there was more vocal protest. And it does intertwine a bit with the anti-war protests of Vietnam and the civil rights protests and, you know, women's rights, all of these rights groups and so on, all of that, you know, where Americans became, especially young Americans, much more outspoken about the dangerousness of the American government and its policies. Maybe we can talk a bit about the title of your book. Um, well, why did you choose to title your book after the Kubrick movie, Dr. Strangelove? And, and where do you think that, that that film fits into this history? Well, I titled it Dr. Strangelove's America because, as I argue, um, and I'm not sure many found it all that convincing, although I do, obviously, I thought that the film encapsulated a good deal of what had come before in terms of the dissent and then uh, was very much representative of the new sort of outspoken protests against nuclear weapons and really everything that they represented at the time about American leadership and the warring uh, nature of American society. And it did so through black humor, which was, I thought, incredibly important in terms of you know a new... Uh, genre of dissent culturally for Americans, one that, you know, was much less fearful than had existed in the past where you can laugh 
at the danger, however strange that may seem. I think one of the one of the themes that that movie tackles is the idea of mutually assured destruction, and it, it, it sort of it's, it sort of tries to disarm that trope. What was the consensus on mutually assured destruction? Is this something that most Americans believed in in the in 1950s and 60s? Well, I do think if, you know, uh, polls could have been taken, I suspect most, par- uh, most Americans would have, you know, at least given lip service to their support for that idea. But the very acronym itself suggests everything that was kind of insane about American society and American policy. It was mad. In this podcast, you're trying to make sense of all the nuclear anxiety. There's, there's doom and gloom, and there are those that say some of our worries are a little bit um, overstated. And we're, we're trying to figure out what's the sort of healthy point, what's the right amount of anxiety. Do you think we're, we're too worried about this, not worried enough? I do wonder about that. Obviously, you know, I grew up in the, the worst years of the Cold War and clearly was influenced by this. And I do suspect that I probably worry about it much more uh, than others do. And even on a day-to-day basis, it's not like I sit around worrying about it. <laughs> Although I, I, I should tell you in Hawaii, uh, on the first of every month, they do civil defense drills with sirens going off. Hmm. And I have to say that does freak me out every single first of the month when those go off. None more than when I first moved here and had no idea what they were doing uh, because it did seem like some you know, nuclear attack was on the way uh, when obviously it wasn't. I think in the larger political picture, we're not worried enough. Uh, I know that Obama is currently trying to you know, reduce nuclear arsenals, and I think that's obviously uh, a good start, although he may face major opposition to that. But I'm not sure how advantageous all the worry is when I think most Americans at least probably feel that there's not a lot you can do. Professor Harrison, thanks for joining us today. All right, well, thank you very much for having me. of CITR and get great discounts downtown at 212 Productions, Beat Street Records, Blim, Dream Apparel, The Fall Tattooing, The Kiss Store, Heart and Soul Clothing Inc., Hits Boutique, Pacific Cinema Tech, Project Space, Scratch Records, Vinyl Records, Woo Vintage, The Zoo Shop, and Across the Bridge, North Vancouver Music Gallery. It pays to be a friend of CITR. To learn more, come visit us in room 233 of the sub on UBC campus or check us out online at citr.ca. Welcome back to the Terry Project podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sam Fenn, and Larry Korb, Senior Fellow of the Center of American Progress and Adjunct Professor at Georgetown 
Larry Korb was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for the United States from 1981 through 1985, and he's joining us on the phone today from the NATO Summit in Chicago. Thanks so much for joining us, Larry. It's nice to be with you. Um, so I, I guess our first question is a timely one. Today, Ukea Amano is meeting with Iran's chief nuclear negotiator, Saeed Jaili, this week. Um, can you maybe set the scene for us and tell us a little bit uh, about what the negotiations are going to be about upcoming in Baghdad? Well, I, I think the key, <clears throat> you, you got several issues. First of all, they want to ensure that the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, can, can have a free hand to inspect uh, all of the uh, facilities so that we know exactly what's happening. Are they doing things that, you know, violate the NPT? Are they enriching, you know, how, how much are they enriching? Do they have facilities they haven't, you know, made known about? And I think that's kind of the key thing because uh, unless these, if you will, I wouldn't call them demands, unless these conditions or these issues are resolved uh, come uh, June and, and July, then, you know, the European Union, all 27 nations, are going to put much more stringent uh, sanctions on Iran. What are U.S. Uh, foreign policy tensions here, and how do you think the elections will play a part in this? Well, I think uh, the election won't, you know, it's going to be interesting, given the fact that the President of the United States pretty well unfettered in foreign policy, whereas in domestic policy it's very difficult for him. Usually that's what elections are about. This one won't be. It's all about the economy, and the mm -hmm. Democrats are usually perceived as weak on defense, but with, uh, you know, President Obama having gotten Osama bin Laden, getting us out of Iraq, and he's going to be, you know, getting us out of Afghanistan. That's not going to be an issue. Governor Romney has tried to portray him as weak, you know, on Iran, and he should be, you know, tougher. He said, if I'm elected, Iran won't get a nuclear weapon. But he hasn't said, you know, would he uh, you know, attack. And most Americans are tired of war. We, you know, had wars with two Muslim countries. The last thing we want is a war with the third one. Our military doesn't want to do it. They're kind of worn out. And they know that, you know, a war with Iran would be exponentially more difficult than Iraq or Afghanistan. What is the smart knowledge on Iran's nuclear program? What do we know about it? Well, I think we know that they're moving toward a position where if they don't actually go, you know, develop the weapon, they're at a point where they can develop it. You know, the, the difference, for example, between our policy, the United States, and the Israelis, at least stated, the Israelis don't want them to acquire the wherewithal to make it. Ours is we don't want them to actually make it. And a lot of people are thinking they would get to the point where they, you know, had, you know, done all the testing and enriched the uranium so they could make it very quickly if they, you know, made a decision to do it, but stay below that threshold, which technically speaking would mean they would not be in violation of the non-proliferation treaty. Do we have any idea why um, reports are that they're at 20% enrichment, but 5% is all you need for a nuclear energy program? Do we, have, do we have any idea why they've jumped up from 5 to 20? Well, I, I think if you go back and you take a look at what has, you know, what has happened, back in, in 2001, you see, people forget that Iran condemned the attacks of 9-11, and they were very, very cooperative with the United States in going after the Taliban in, in 2001. In fact, at the Bonn conference in which with President Karzai was installed, they persuaded their allies, the Northern Alliance, who they had been arming you know, and equipping against the Taliban to support Karzai, who's a Pashtun. 
then in, you know, for the, the reward, if you will, and for that was in the 2002, then former President Bush put them on the axis of evil along with North Korea and Iraq. Then when we invaded uh, Iraq, the Iranians offered to sit down and discuss everything with us. And basically, you know, we, we, you know, the Bush administration said no. They, you know, thought they were in a position of strength at that time. And then you had a couple of changes of leadership uh, within the Islamic Republic of Iran where the more moderate elements were, you know, moved aside. And you had Ahmadinejad and, and, and the clerics. And even Ahmadinejad has been seen as too moderate, if you will, for the ruling clerics. So power is going to the hands of the military, the Revolutionary Guard, and the, uh, and the supreme leader, the Ayatollahs. And so I think, you know, they're feeling that they've got to do this to deal with the incursion of particularly of the United States into their, into their part of the world. Another question we have is, I mean, it's clear that Iranians enriching uranium is, um, is threatening to the United States and to Israel. Is it illegal under international law? Well, they signed the non-proliferation treaty. They could do what North Korea did and opt out of the treaty. They haven't done they haven't done that yet. And but basically, what they're being accused of is not living up to the standards of the non-proliferation treaty, and that's the legal justification for the international community putting sanctions on them in terms of their oil supplies and their financial, because under the terms. In order to get the benefits, you have to allow, you know, the inspections, and they have, you know, they have not uh, have not done that yet. So technically speaking, they're in violation of a treaty which, in fact, they they signed. They have not opted out of yet because they want to get the benefits. So one of the benefits is that if you sign it and agree not to develop nuclear weapons, you get access to the wherewithal to develop peaceful uses of uh, nuclear energy. There's a lot of panic and hysteria right now about Iran, and I just wanted to get a sense from you how much of that is overblown and how much of that is is warranted. So uh, Iran is often portrayed as an existential threat to Israel and a possible rogue actor who could use a nuclear weapon. In your mind, is there any credence to that, that point of view? Well, uh, again, you know, I think if you look at it from the Israeli perspective, this obviously is, you know, a Jewish state and these you know, their ancestors survived the Holocaust, and I don't have to tell you all the horrible things that have been done against Jewish people throughout throughout history. And you have a president, Ahmadinejad, when he took over, talked about wiping Israel off the map. And, I mean, that, that type of thing, you can understand the Israeli position. However, if you look at it, you know, I think from my view and, and the view of a lot of people who, you know, looked at nuclear weapons, let's say they did get it. Um, and they have one or two, why would they use it knowing darn well that the Israelis have a couple hundred, we have a couple of thousand, that it would be the end of their, you know, state as we know it. Now, people who disagree with that position would say, yeah, but that's all, that assumes that they're rational. See, and, and these people, quote, unquote, they're crazy. Look at some of the, you know, the stuff that, uh, you know, Ahmadinejad has said over the years. So I think that, you know, that's, you know, a, a different point of view. Uh, but I, you know, if you look at it, you know, we contain, we lived, uh, again, in the 60s when China got nuclear weapons, Mao Zedong was running the place, and this was the, you know, the, you had the, the, you know, all of his revolutions and the Great Leap Forward, and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, 
and, and, and that and people thought even the Soviets thought we couldn't trust them with it. And they actually came to the United States and said, let's take, you know, let's prevent him from getting it. Well, you know, Mao got it. We lived through all of the revolutions. And, you know, I mean, we were able to contain him. So I, I think that sitting, you know, in the United States, I think it can be contained. The other problem that you have is if Iran were to get a nuclear weapon, even if the Israelis, you know, they don't attack the Israelis, there's a feeling that countries that concerned about Iran, UAE, Saudi Arabia, you know, Bahrain, they may decide to get nuclear weapons, and then, of course, you have a whole nuclear arms race in that part of the world, which I don't think anybody wants. In the same way, then, that Mao Zedong's bomb was sort of funneled through the discourse of anti-communism, do you, do you think that there's a role in the panic that's happening um, about assumptions in the U.S. about Islam and Arab political culture, and what, what role would that play? Well, again, if you look at it from the Iranian point of view, <clears throat> the Iranians would say, well, you know, Pakistan has a bomb. They're a Muslim country. In fact, they're bigger than we are. You know, why, why can't, uh, you know, we get it? Now, of course, then you get the sort of the Sunni-Shia, you know, uh, uh, rivalry. Uh, Israel has a bomb, so why can't we get it? So you're basically, you know, you're against us because of, you know, you perceive, uh, <clears throat> you know, our our religion. But I, I don't think it's that. I mean, because we live with Pakistan, and I mean, that's a very unstable state. It happens to be Muslim. They get close to 200 million people. Now Iran has about, uh, you know, 70. And of course, you know, if there ever were going to be a nuclear war, you know, a lot of people think, you know, Pakistan and India, who are traditional rivals, might uh, might use them. But, you know, the interesting thing is ever since they got nuclear weapons, they, you know, have stepped back from the type of conflicts they fought before they got nuclear weapons, because I think each side realizes you don't want this thing to, uh, you know, to, to, to escalate. So there is this, you know, and I mean, from an Iranian point of view, there would say, well, it's because you don't think we're Western civilization or, you know, that we're, you know, an Islamic republic, so therefore we're not entitled to, you know, to uh, have that. And I think there are some people looking at it would, you know, fall into that category or, you know, to support that point of view. We're on the phone with uh, Lawrence Korb from the Center for American Progress. This is the Terry Project podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, Lawrence, I just want to stick with the Iranian point of view. You said that the regime could potentially be looking for deterrent, but what about the populace itself? How does it see its nuclear program, and how does it perceive of the sanctions uh, that are at play right now in Iran? Well, the sanctions are taking a heavy toll on them, because this is the first time, we, you know, we've had meaningful sanctions. If you look at the, you know, they got shortages of basic commodities, <laughs> their currencies being devalued, and other countries are going along with the United States leadership, because they remember when President Obama came in, he reached out to the Iranians and said, I'm willing to negotiate with you with no preconditions. And that didn't get any place, and people said, well, you know, maybe it's not just, you know, hostility on the part of the United States, because they did reach out and, and, and nothing, uh, nothing happened. So the sanctions are beginning, and even countries like India, which had, you know, traditionally gotten, you know, most of its oil from Iran, they're cutting back. They haven't eliminated it, but they're cutting back the amount that they, you know, that they get. Uh, the and, and then in addition, you know, to people not buying their oil, uh, ba basically their banks, you can't pay even if you wanted to buy it, how would you give them the money because of the sanctions we put on their banking system? And, you know, they're using barter and things like that to, you know, try and stay, 
you know, stay afloat, uh, you know, economically to a certain extent. So I think really that, that's where we are right now, and that's why I think, you know, they were willing finally to resume the negotiations, you know, they did in, uh, in Istanbul, and then they'll be, you know, going uh, this week uh, to, uh, to Baghdad which is interesting in itself, given, you know, where they wanted the next site. It shows you that they do have a lot of influence uh, in, uh, in, in Iraq. Mm. Are these sanctions legal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're authorized by the United Nations. Mm. And, uh, that uh, you know, we've gotten these things through the U.N. And, yeah, that... that um, and, and not only are they legal, but given the U.N. supporters, even countries like Russia and China, they're much more effective... And if, you know, an individual country were to do it itself. Uh, one thing that um, has been stated uh, in the U.S. press a lot lately is that Ayatollah Khomeini has said that nuclear weaponry is actually against the tenets of Islam. Do you have a sense that this is um, a, a feeling that Iranians themselves share? Well, there's no doubt about it. The interesting thing is when the Shah, who we put in power, we overthrew, we, the United States and the and, uh, and, and, and the UK in 1953, they had an, an elected, you know, democratically elected leader, Mossadegh, and the British convinced the Eisenhower administration that he was going to join, you know, up with the Soviet Union. So we overthrew and we put the Shah in power, and we were helping the Shah develop nuclear weapons. When the first Ayatollah took over in 1979, the revolution, he stopped it and said it was un-Islamic for them to develop the bomb. Mm. So there is that feeling among some of the very religious people. And remember, it is a very religious society. I mean, it's ruled by the, the ruling, uh, ruling clerics. Is there a danger that um, the sanctions and the other punitive measures actually might backfire and sort of embolden both the regime and the populace? Well, I, I think it could, and, and that's part of the problem. I mean, they're, they're, they're having a lot of problems internally, as you know. Remember the 2009 elections? Mm -hmm. In the last election they had, they couldn't get anybody to turn out the vote because, you know, everybody knew that, you know, they had parliamentary elections. Uh, and they knew it really wasn't going to amount to, <clears throat> uh, to very much. But you're right. I mean, if you overplay your hand, all of those people will see it, you know, Iran against kind of the rest of the world. And particularly if you attack, I have no doubt that that would unite the population. What role does China and Russia play in this story? Well, Russia, interestingly enough, has been more and more supportive over the years. A lot of people would say it's because we reset relations with Russia. But they, in fact, went so far as the Iranians two years ago had purchased a number of, you know, air defense missiles, and they refused to give them to them. And, you know, they're, they're joining in because the Russians basically don't want to see the, that whole region get destabilized. And, you know, they, you know, their economy depends upon, you know, the, the you know, um, exporting uh, energy. And so they don't want to see the, the markets and everything just disrupted. And China has gone along. I mean, they've cut down the amount that they've bought. In fact, they're, they're kind of bargaining with the Iranians to get whatever they buy at a much lower cost. We're speaking with uh, Larry Korb, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for the United States through 1981 to 1985. Larry, so on this podcast thus far, we've really talked about nuclear anxiety, anxiety around nuclear weapons, anxiety around nuclear um, energy. And so the question, I want to really get a sense from you, like how worried should we be and what in particular should we be, we be worried about if Iran is truly pursuing a nuclear weapon? Well, I think you have to worry about that it could destabilize that whole, <clears throat> whole region, because if they get them, 
and then they make some of these outlandish statements, uh, the Israelis may feel they have to respond. The Saudis may decide that they want to get nuclear weapons. You could set off our, uh, an arms race. So, I mean, if they get it, uh, you know, you'd be lucky if you don't have instability in that in that in that region. Some analysts have predicted Israel will attack Iran um, sometime before the U.S. election. Do you do you think there's much credence to that prediction? Well, there was talk about that a while ago, but I think that talk has passed, and you probably have seen, you know, Israeli generals downplaying it, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert down, downplaying it. So, no, I, I, I don't think you're going to see anything uh, before the American election. A lot of people thought that that might be a time for the Israelis to do it because then, you know, put president obama in a tough position since romney had you know been so forceful on this issue but i again you know uh, i i just don't think that's uh, that's going to happen before the election how afraid are um israeli citizens well i mean there are some folks are concerned but i mean i, I you don't get the impression you look at the opinion polls mm -hmm. that most of the people there are that that concerned mm -hmm. um but of course if you're a leader you know you you can't, if you take a chance and you're wrong, then, you know, it could, have, it could all be over. So, no, I, I think if you look at public opinion in Israel, it's more or less sides with the, you know, the, the generals and the head of the, you know, the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. uh, here's an interesting question. Um, since the 80s, how have you seen uh, public opinion about nuclear technology change? Well, I think what you've seen is there's a movement in the world to really... Uh, get rid of, you know, cut down the number of nuclear weapons that states have, because the feeling is, unless you do that, then what would happen would be that, um, you know, they could fall into the hands of a, a terrorist group. I think most people feel that, you know, if nuclear weapons do get used, they will not be, you know, used by a, uh, you know, an organized state, but basically it would fall into the hands of one of these, you know, radical groups who would love to, you know, explode mm -hmm. one in, you know, the middle of, uh, you know, Times Square or maybe downtown Vancouver or something. Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Are you hopeful for the role of diplomacy in solving this crisis? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, they, you know, I, I think so, I mean, because I think the Iranians basically have recognized they never thought the international community would get this together or that their friends in Russia would, uh, would bail them out. But I think when they're looking at these European sanctions, I mean, they really were, because that would be almost a straw that breaks the camel's back, mm -hmm. and they don't want to see that uh, happen. So I, I do think that there'll be some face-saving way out of this where we say, <clears throat> well, you can enrich uranium, but only to 5%. If you want 20%, you know, and we'll send it to you. We'll enrich it and send it to you so, you, you know, you can use it for medical reasons or whatever. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Larry Corbett. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, download our smartphone app, and check out full-length versions of all of our interviews at terry.ubc.ca. Special thanks to our tremendous guests, Thomas Blanton, David Meesday, Jose Echeverry, Mike Ray, Margot Henriksen, Alexei Kajevnikov, and Lawrence Korb. For Gordon Kadic, Molly DeYoung, and Rachel Gutman, I'm Sam Fenn saying, see you next time on the Terry Project Podcast. Tell me, oh.
you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And finally, nuclear... <laughs> And finally, nuclear proliferation and...